Need to create a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. We target Angular 6 and the recent versions with much of the curriculum is suitable back to Angular 2. Or go beyond the three-day class with a consultation or project launch with Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. We can assist your team or launch your project with advanced Angular topics including scalability, data flow, state management, full stack product design, and more. Contact us for a private class at your location or buy a ticket for public classes in various cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Alyssa Nichol. Hello, hello. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's James Shore. James, do you want to say hi? Hi there. Uh, now, we've had you on a couple of other shows. I think we had you on Ruby Rogues at least once, and then also on My Ruby Story. Did we have you on JavaScript Jabber as well? I can't remember for sure. I don't think we have, no. Uh, we'll have to remedy that. Anyway, James is one of my favorite people to talk to about agile development. It seemed like last time I talked to him on any of the shows, he had all kinds of interesting takes on things and 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 really kind of understands how people work instead of what I see in Agile as kind of the methodology proliferation that doesn't necessarily always help people. Sometimes it does, but a lot of people focus more on the uh, pedantic details instead of the people who are working in the system. So anyway, we brought you on today to talk about the Agile Fluency Project and how we work. So do you want to just, I don't know if you have more introduction to give than that, but. Uh, no, I think, I mean, I guess I should say I'm, although I do a lot of work with Agile and people think of Agile as being more of a management thing these days, I got, in, I got started with something called extreme programming back in 1999 because it was, you know, because it was made in the 90s, it had to be extreme, right? So surfboards and, and keyboards are the way you're supposed to program. <laughs> nice. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm a programmer by background. I, I, I still do a lot of programming. I had a screencast that recently shut down. Well, it's still out there, but I'm not recording new screencasts for it uh, on JavaScript. Um, and uh, I am one of the people who's really sad that Agile is supposedly only for managers or people see it as more of a management thing these days. Yeah, now that you mention it, a lot of my entrepreneurial friends that are not developers, they do things like stand-ups and stuff like that and have adopted some of the ideas that came out of Agile. And yeah, it has. It's become more of a management thing and less of a development thing. Yeah, and I think what people forget is that when this started, it was a reaction, when this, by this, I mean Agile, when Agile started, it was a reaction to, in the 80s and 90s, this sort of management belief that the right way to develop software was to hire armies of replaceable programmers and get a few smart architects to design something, create a really detailed specification, hand it off to these sort of, frankly, not that bright programmers and, and let them work. <laughs> that, was, that was the way... That was the way people thought software should be done in the 80s and 90s. And um, that's where a lot of the offshoring movement came from, because if you don't need, I'm not saying the people who are offshore are not bright, but if the perception is that all these folks are interchangeable, then you don't really need to talk to them, right? You just hand them a spec. And so it doesn't matter where in the world they are. 
And so the Agile movement came about in reaction to that. It was a programmer-driven movement about how can we create high-quality software in a way that isn't so dehumanizing and doesn't have this problem where when people ask for changes, we say, no, you can't do that. But in the last 10, 15 years, it's sort of Agile's turning back into this management thing, which is, I think, really, really unfortunate. And it seems like Agile is turning into an everything thing, right? Like it started off in the car industry and now there isn't a single industry out there that isn't somehow adopting Agile for something that it's doing, whether that's volunteer crocheting and knitting all the way up to, um, you know, putting people on the moon, right? Like Agile is, is an everything thing and it's leaving the developers sort of behind. You know, uh, Jerry Weinberg, who's a famous person, uh, worked in software, the software industry, uh, worked with consultants, unfortunately passed away just, just last month, I think. And so that's why I'm thinking of him. He had something he called the law of raspberry jam, which is that you can have a good idea and it's like a lump of raspberry jam. And the further you spread it around, the thinner and more you know, less effective it gets. And I've, I feel like that's what's happened with Agile is because the word Agile, sure, that's everywhere. But the original ideas of Agile, what this is really about, uh, how it actually works, and the idea that you need to have some real expertise in order to do it well, at least as a programmer, um, those, those pieces of it have gotten lost. Now you just hear about sprints and standups and not much else. Yeah, it's, it's funny how that all works where we've basically gotten back to blocks of work and yeah in interchangeable pieces that can get the blocks of work done again yeah after all that it's a very convenient way to think if you're a manager it's not an effective way to think but it's convenient it's easy right and people love easy yeah the the issue that i run into with a lot of this stuff is just that when when you get to that and you pare it down that that far then you start to forget that these people have lives and that they're people and that they have to go home at the end of the day and be you know, generally happy with how the day went so that they don't, you know, create tension at home because they're worn out, blah, blah, blah. You know, so you run into all these issues. And the other thing is, is if you're burning out your resources, right, you're thinking as resources, you just burn them out. Then you cycle through people pretty quickly. And that creates a whole other set of issues. And you don't get good software out of it anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at the Agile Manifesto, which is available at agilemanifesto.org, that's the original statement of what Agile is. And the very first statement on there, the first value is individuals and interactions over processes and tools. That came from wanting to put the emphasis back on capable people rather than having this idea that a big spec and a big process document could solve all your problems. But again, it's it's easy to say, but not so easy to do. And so people don't do it. Right. So how does the Agile Fluency Project address this then? Well, the Agile, I don't know that we can address it because it's a huge, huge industry and people like to do things that are easy. But what we have in the Agile Fluency Project is we are focused on software teams. So we're not going to address the people who are going to the moon with Agile or mm -hmm. you know, running their HR departments. Not to say that that's not a good idea. I think some of the principles could apply to other fields. It's just that you have to have the same emphasis on expertise and excellence that we did in the programming part of Agile back in the early 2000s. But what we're doing in the Agile Fluency Project is we 
we've created something called the Agile Fluency Model, which is a way of describing how teams tend to learn Agile over time. And we've got four zones in this model, uh, focusing, delivering, optimizing, and strengthening. And each of these zones has benefits that come out of it. Uh, For the focusing zone, you're going to have the ability to see what teams are doing and change direction. For the delivering zone, you'll have the ability to ship your software whenever you want and have it be low defect. Uh, For the optimizing zone, you'll have a team that really understands their market and is able to deliver uh, high value work to that market that the customers actually want. Each of these zones has value. It's not a maturity model, which says, you know, get to the end to really see the benefit. Um, the fluency model says each of these zones has value. And the, the purpose of it is to choose the zone that's right for your company. So by doing this, the, the I guess, not so secret hidden agenda behind this is that we want people to see, hey, here are the, what you can really get out of Agile. That's more, it's more than just a stand up or a sprint. Here are the types, types of benefits you should be able to see out of an Agile team. Here's the type of investment it needs as an organization to get those benefits. And if you're not seeing those benefits, then maybe you don't have, maybe you don't understand Agile as well as you think you do. Mm-hmm. And maybe you should work on understanding it better. And so we published an article with Martin Fowler, which goes into a lot of detail about what, what are the benefits? What are the organizational investments? But also what kind of proficiency should you see? And our hope is that people will use this and they will go a little bit deeper and they won't take such a shallow view of this thing that has really, in a lot of ways, turned into a buzzword. A lot of the programmers I know, you know, turn away from Agile because they think it's just yet another management fad or a way of controlling them. Interesting. I'm curious what Joe and Alyssa's experience have been with Agile because Joe's been around development for a long time and Alyssa for less of a long time. (laughs) So... (laughs) So long. Hey, let's, I want to hear from Alyssa first. Are you mine agile, like, Alyssa? Are you <laughs> am agile? I agile? Yes. Um, that is the question. Mine is still a, I don't know, I would say I'm more confused on the subject. And I think what you said, James, is really true about how it is kind of just a buzzword because the last team that I worked on, we had so many different talks. Uh, it kind of got exhausting about like, are we, are we doing Kanban or are we doing Waterfall or are we doing Agile? And to me, it was just like, okay, well, does this actually change my day-to-day? And like, if the answer was no, I just kind of like blurred it all out. So I <laughs> honestly, I'm really confused on, and I'd love to hear more on what you think we've lost because you were saying that like things uh, like, people aren't really doing agile anymore. And so I'm, I'm curious on what have we actually lost by not doing it anymore? Yeah, that's, wow, that's such a big topic. I don't even know where to begin on that. But, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I would say that the experience you had is exactly what I'm talking about when I say mm-hmm. I'm frustrated with what's happening with agile. This, the sense that it's just, you know, it's management microcontrolling uh, just mm-hmm. if, if, if this isn't going to affect my day-to-day, why do I even need to care about it? I, I think what we've lost, so I would say in about 2005, 2006, the nature of Agile began to, to switch. When it started out, it was a grassroots movement. It, it came along in the mid-90s, late-90s, really hit its stride in about 2000, 2001, 2002. And at that point, it was a grassroots movement driven by programmers who were on, who 
who were innovating in new ways. They wanted to create new ways of doing software development. And the sort of the poster child of this movement was extreme programming. That's what brought Agile into the mainstream mm-hmm. amongst programmers originally. Kent, Kent Beck's book. That's right. Yeah, he had a book called Extreme Programming Explained. He's also the guy who invented test-driven development. Mm-hmm. He had a, a very highly regarded book that I think a lot of people haven't heard of called Small Talk Best Practice Patterns, which was published in the 90s. Uh, other people involved in this movement, Martin Fowler, his book uh, Refactoring was sort of part of, of this effort. Uh, his UML Distilled book, which was a sort of a backdoor way of getting people off of big processes and off of big UML into lightweight ways of doing things. I think what we've lost is is the programmer-driven nature of this because, because this did start out as a way of innovating about programming. Um, but now people see this as a management structure that's you know, something for programmers to ignore unless it affects their day-to-day. What we've lost is the technical innovation around Agile. And a lot of the innovations that were originally created in the Agile movement, like evolutionary design, continuous uh, delivery, I mean, that you, that's still around. Test-driven development in its more proper form than what you see today. A lot of these ideas have, caught, have either been forgotten, like evolutionary design and continuous design, merciless refactoring, or they have been watered down like test-driven development, which has turned into a way of writing lots of boilerplate code to create mocks <laughs> to rewrite what you're implementing. Uh, so... Yeah, I'll I'll stop there. Oh we gosh. could go into any one of those in more detail. We got to dig into that one. The la- the last thing you said, test driven development is a way to write boilerplate code to mock things. <laughs> I don't even know if I really said exactly what, like I know all the words that you use, but you strung them together in a way that both scares and confuses me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, should I talk about what test driven development is before I go into that? Yes. Absolutely. All right. So, so uh, test-driven development is, is a way of writing your code so that you have confidence to change it in the future. Some people, though, uh, but the way it's been watered down and sort of misinterpreted over the last couple of decades, if you, the listeners, are in a company that's using test-driven development, you're probably thinking about it as more of a way of getting unit test code coverage. Uh, how can you make sure all your software is tested? But that's not what test-driven development is. Now, for those of you who have never heard of test-driven development at all, it's a very short, quick cycle where we write a couple of lines. We think about the thing that we want to write. And then normally what you do is you think about the thing you're going to write, and then you go write it, and then you run it to see if it worked, right? That's, that's sort of normal development. Test-driven development, it starts out with think about the thing we're going to write, and then think about the next tiny little piece of that, the next three or four lines of code that we want to write. And then from there, what are three or four lines of test code that we can write that will prove that we've done it successfully, that will fail only until we've written those three or four lines correctly. Then we write that test, we run the test, they take a fraction of a second. All the tests together will run at hundreds per second. So it takes a fraction of a second to run that test that we've just written, we see it fail, we write the code that we would plan to write, see it pass, run all of our tests, which takes a couple of seconds, and know that we fit in this new code into our overall system without breaking anything and without uh, affecting anything. Then we look at the design of the code and we say, 
how can I make this code better? And if you see any way to make it better, you refactor. And refactoring, of course, is changing the design of the code without changing the behavior. Uh, some people use the word refactor to mean rewrite, but that's another thing that's sort of gotten lost in the last 20 years. Uh, refactoring is changing the design without changing behavior. So you refactor the code to make it cleaner and better, run the tests after each time to make sure you didn't accidentally break anything, and then repeat. And this, this is a cycle that happens really fast uh, because you're only writing a couple of lines of code at a time. You do this over and over again, and you'll go through it dozens of times in an hour. And the result of this is, code that you have a lot of confidence in that's also very amenable to change because you've been changing it all the way along. So it's very easy to change as well. So that's test-driven development. Um, I'll stop there and let you all say So I, I wanted to comment on one thing. Uh, I would actually, obviously, uh, what you said about what people think and are defining test-driven development as, like, it's hard, obviously, I, or it's difficult to argue with that. But I would say from my perspective, your original description of what test-driven development was, I would disagree with that. But uh, again, much like both Agile and um, REST, uh, those technologies oftentimes are just defined in the eye of the beholder and not really uh, somewhere else. But what, what, how did you describe it at the very first, what test-driven development is? It's a, it's a way of writing code so that you have confidence, confidence. to change yep. it in the future. Right. Right. Yeah. So, well, how would you define it? It's a way to help me design better code. In fact, I would find value for me personally in using test-driven development, and then when I'm done and have the code, throwing away the tests and still find value in it, and not even retaining the tests. Yeah. So, I, I would totally agree with that. There's there's a lot of benefits that you get from test-driven development. Right. Yeah. Okay. We're talking. About, there's like five, ten actual benefits, and what you did was you picked the one that either people can identify with or you yourself identify with most. I more identify with uh, option number two, right? But there's still like, in fact, I wrote a fairly well-published article uh, about the benefits of test-driven development and um, tried to enumerate like about not, something like eight or nine of them. But uh, those are, we really just talk about two of the many benefits of TDD. Yeah, yeah. And you're absolutely right. I mean, one one of my flaws is that, you know, in trying to speak to a lot of people, sometimes I simplify things down too far. And so it's true that uh, although I chose the piece of it, which is confidence to change code, because the reason I chose that is not so much because it's my favorite part of it. It's because the thing, it's the value that I see people forgetting most often. Uh But there's also, you know, there's documentation benefit. There is code coverage, but that's the thing that I feel people spend too much attention on. Um, there's there's the design aspect. I, I would disagree that test-driven development doesn't create better design, but because it works in such tiny steps, it gives you the opportunity, should you choose to accept it, <laughs> should you choose to pay attention to design, it gives you the opportunity to create better designs because you are exercising your code more, uh, in a different way and thinking, and thinking about it in more, smaller steps. So I do create better designs through test-driven development, but I wouldn't say that it happens automatically, which, Interesting. Uh, so, which I do feel some people think. We're, we're starting to head a little bit off on a bit of a tangent, but this is my, one of my favorite tangents. So <laughs> can I counterpoint that uh, from my experience? Go ahead and then I'm going to push back on something else. So go. Shut up, Chuck. <laughs> we're going down this rabbit hole as far as, as far as James and I can go. All right. Uh, so I'll put my counterpoint in on that. And I think that... Um, 
when I'm doing test-driven design, because I'm writing the tests first, I'm before I write my code, I'm writing a client for the code. The test is a client. It's It actually has to hook up to and exercise whatever code that I'm writing, right? So I'm actually writing a client for the code. So one of the things that I'm doing, uh, like uh, I'm just going to mention two points here that cause test-driven development in, innately to cause better designed code. So one is I'm thinking from the beginning of this, from the standpoint or the viewpoint of the client of the code that I'm writing. So it's like, imagine I'm building a car. If I build the car and don't think about the person who's using the car, then I'm going to build a worse car, right? Maybe I make it, I can make the engine more efficient if I stick the engine where the passenger seat might be. And uh, I run the drivetrain right through where the driver has to sit, Right. Maybe then the car is more efficient, but overall it's a worse car, right? So that's like a, a totally stretched analogy. But because I'm thinking when I write my code from the standpoint of the consumer of the code, if I'm writing a class, I'm thinking from the standpoint and the viewpoint of the consumer, that will innately cause me to write better code. I'll write a better API that's more usable rather than what's more most efficient for the actual code or most effective for the actual code that I'm writing. How would it like to see its parameters? How many parameters would it like to have? How would it like to be called? But instead, how would the consumers like to call it? And then two is the age-old theory that anything that is difficult to test is less effective code. So because I'm writing test-driven development, I'm writing, I'm doing test-driven development, I'm doing test code that is inherently testable. So it must be, according to that theory, better code. So there's two throwbacks or counterpoints to uh, what you said. And I don't know if those are 100% necessarily disagree with what you said, but uh, the way that you said, that's what I was kind of hearing you were saying is that it innately doesn't cause better code. And I would definitely argue against that if we were, if this show was about TDD, which I want it to be. <laughs> well, and, and here's here's the thing that I'm seeing here is that you both agree that TDD has value. And generally what I'm hearing from both of you is that my experience says that this is the value I get from it. And Joe's saying, well, and in my experience, there's other value that I get from it. And I, I wonder a little bit going back to the original point where we're talking about how people just see Agile as a management process is that, again, these values haven't been communicated to people in the trenches for for their benefit. You know, it's all the manager's benefit or all somebody else's benefit. And so when it comes down to what the heck do I get out of it? It's, well, you get a happier boss. Good for you. And, right. you know, my experience with Agile personally, um, the last full-time job I had, which was, what, eight and a half years ago, something like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, we, we really pushed to have Agile adopted as part of our team because we saw the benefit and we, it, it was a way for us to take control of our development process and make it work for us so we could write great software. And so I'm wondering where, you know, again, you're, what, what you're talking about with TDD, how does this get lost in translation on something that, to me at least, seems obvious in its value in development teams at large? Hold on for just a second. I need to open up my bucket list and check off. Have conversation, deep conversation about TDD with James Shore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and before I respond to, to, to what you just said, Charles, um, I do want to say I, I have no disagreement with what Joe is saying about the benefits of TDD. I think the difference, the only difference might be that I'm more cynical about <laughs> about its ability to be magical. <laughs> I've seen people take the good ideas and misuse them in pretty much every way they can be misused. So 
Yeah, sorry, I was I muted myself for a second there because I was busy drinking some Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think the point you made about what are the benefits, I, I don't know if it's even that. I think that some of the managers who are going through this don't even realize that there is a programming discipline to Agile. You know, I, I, I would agree with that. Can we put a pin in that and go to uh, directly like... TDD, I, I have a few thoughts about the missed value of just TDD by itself, because that I think can potentially be a microcosm for the missed value as just the whole communication of what Agile is and where it sits with developers. So throwing it back out to you, James, how do you feel like developers are missing what the value of TDD is, which causes fewer people to practice TDD as a discipline? Or do you even at all think that? I think that's, I mean, I work with a lot of different teams, so I've seen a lot of different perspectives. Anything from what you were saying that, you know, this is a great tool and I see lots of value from it and it helps me in this way down to this is something I'm forced to do. And I would say on sort of the the negative end of that spectrum, this is something I'm forced to do or this is something I do mechanically. I would say across the board, the issue is when people take an idea and they think they can read a headline and understand it fully. So something like TDD, which I think can act as a microcosm for the bigger issue, like you said, uh, if people see that and say, okay, so what I'm doing is writing the test first. I know what testing is. It's to prove that code is correct. So my whole purpose here is to check that I've gotten 100% code coverage. So if they do that, they read the headline and they say, I understand this already. And then they say, okay, so my goal is to get 100% code coverage. I know I'm going to write these lines of code. Now I can use, let's say, mock objects and a dependency injection framework so that I write exactly the lines of code I want to write without ever thinking about myself as, as a client of this code, but just how can I mechanically get these lines of code written, which is something that I see quite a lot with people doing test-driven development. It's just how can I write a test that forces these lines of code to get executed, but basically does nothing but say those lines of code in a different way. I love your point there about trying to understand the article by reading the headline. That is so true. What a, what a great way to put that in. And I definitely identify and see that tons of people thinking, yeah, I, I, I watched a 20-minute video about what TDD is, and it's definitely not a good thing for me or for us, or it's, here's all the, pro- let me tell you the problems with it now that I've, <laughs> now that I've gotten a hugely deep understanding of it after having watched a, a video about it, right? Yeah, I, I guess Welcome it's... the Facebook. Yeah, it's the internet, right? Is we're all experts on so nothing. So true. You know, so true. <laughs> so we're true. On nothing. Oh my gosh, hold on, I'm tweeting that right now. <laughs> but, but it is, I mean, people, they, they do, they just look at the headline and then they think they know. And in reality, what they what if they read through it, it might say something completely different from what they got from the headline. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. I think it's human nature, and I guess my way of you know fighting back against human nature is to show up on shows like this and and complain. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm right there with you. So, deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute 
flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash adventures. So, so anyway, I'm curious then, how do we combat this? Like, how do we really get in there so, and, and help people understand the benefits of what we're talking about? Well, I think, I think there's two parts to it. There's, there's what your audience, you know, the programmers listening to this show, there's what they can do. And then there's a limit to what people in the trenches can do. I mean, some of the people listening to this might be, you know, architects or have a leadership role in their companies. They can do a lot more. Some people are individual contributors and sort of embedded in a team and subject to the whims of their management. And there's, there's things that they can do. I would say that first off, at least with regards to Agile and the programming and development aspects of Agile, dig into, you know, some of the things we were doing 15 years ago, 20 years ago now, boy, that makes me feel old. It, <laughs> Me too. Some of the some of the really cool stuff that's out there that has been forgotten. So look into, for example, what is the the early writing on test driven development and how it works. Um, experiment with writing writing tests without using any mock objects at all. For those of you who are doing TDD and and know what mock objects are, try doing it without it. Look into things like uh, Martin Fowler's got a new refactoring book out that's all about JavaScript. So it's a great it's a great fit for those of you listening to this show. Um, read that. Uh, look into evolutionary design, which was a key, you know, very influential idea in the early agile engineering space that has been completely lost because it's impossible to teach in a two-day course. So it's just sort of gone off, off the wayside. Um, as a programmer, there's so much you can do to really understand the cool ideas that are behind, that the innovations that were happening in this space that people aren't really developing any further. Um, I think one thing you can do if you're interested in being part of the engineering innovation is look into DevOps. That's, that's I think, where a lot of the innovators in this space have moved on to is the original mm -hmm. DevOps movement. Not the, but that also is getting sort of co-opted and turned into a, a magic headline phrase rather than what it was really about. And then that can get you so far, but you know, you've, you've got management around you that may prevent you from taking that beyond yourself or the other people in your team. And that's where, at the risk of you know, tuning my own horn, that's where the Agile Fluency model and the Agile Fluency project comes in. We, our purpose is to <laughs> make the world safe for programming again, is, is to create, uh, create the messages for managers that in a way that they like, but are subversive and still in support and doing really good work. Uh, so they can read these things and learn about how maybe what they thought of being the agile way as a purely management structure, isn't getting them what they could be getting. That was a long rant. <laughs> I think I'll, yeah. I'll shut up for a moment. No, it, it's, it's definitely interesting. So, so yeah, so they look into it. Let's say that we get somebody to look into it and they're saying, okay, you know, this, this does go beyond management. I mean, how do they get started? How do they get started making it into a collaborative effort? Because, I mean, that, that to me was the real value in Agile, right? Is that everybody who was a stakeholder in the process, meaning anyone who worked under, underneath the, the process, had a say in the process. Yeah, one of the core ideas was, is that decisions 
should be made by the people who are closest to the work. Mm-hmm. So decisions should be made by the people doing the work, not by their managers, because they have the most information about how the work, what the work needs and how the work should be done. So how do they get there? How do they go from, hey, we're going to do Agile to, hey, let's talk about how we do Agile? Boy, it's tough. It's, it's not easy as somebody sort of in the trenches, if you don't have a lot of influence over your management, uh, it's, it's not necessarily easy to get there. There is a book out there that I'm going to recommend. Uh, it's called Fearless Change, and it's by Mary Lynn Manns and Linda Rising. And uh, they have a sequel called More Fearless Change. And this is a, a collection of patterns of ideas for people to use to create change in their organization. Um, if, you've got, if you've got influence in the organization, then absolutely use it. If you don't have influence in the organization, then I would say start out by finding people who do have influence. That's going to be the senior technical people in your organization or the managers who came up through a technical track or maybe architects. I mean, the, the titles really can vary widely depending on the type of environment you're in. Then step two, find out if they agree with you. Step three, if they don't, get them fired somehow. <laughs> you know, Martin Fowler, I'm, I'm going to say something that's not going to be popular with the managers, but uh, Martin Fowler has a quote. Uh, I don't know when, when he came up with this, but it's a great quote. He said, change your organization or change your organization. And what he meant by that was either change your organization from within or go find a new organization. And to be honest, the easiest way to work in an organization like this is to go get hired into it. It's so hard to change it from, from beneath. Uh, I mean, I definitely, I, I definitely encourage you to try. But if you really want to work in this way, there are companies out there working in this way. Well, and there's, there's something to be said for... Uh, working hard thanklessly in a place where nobody sees, you know, shoveling dirt out of a hole that 20 people are shoveling dirt into because uh, even if you don't feel like you're actually making a real change in the organization, you oftentimes are making a change to specific individuals and helping them out. I mean, I've got examples of that where I was hired onto a company and one of the reasons they liked uh, me was the uh, engineering disciplines that I brought along and the experience in those things. And so we had some kind of unofficial goals to change code coverage and things like that. And it was, in my opinion, that that one year I stayed there, a huge unmitigated failure, right? Nothing really changed. And by and large, the organization only got worse. But uh, there were two younger developers who I taught to test drive to do TDD and um, to how to pair program and several others that I did a lot of TDD and pair programming with. And so a lot of people got very positive experiences with these practices that affected them later on in their careers. And so for me, there was actually that one to look at, even though organizationally, I was very frustrated with the overall changes. So there's some benefits there, but I still, I'm a, I'm a huge, I had 20 jobs in my first 20 years of my of programming. So <laughs> I am a fan of going where it's best to be as well. You're absolutely right though about planting seeds. That's something I've seen over and over again is even if you're not making a difference in the organization you're at to the organization and big organizations especially tend to be, you know, they tend to have a lot of inertia and um, for people who are in a coaching role or in a management role, the Agile Fluency Project, we do have stuff for you. But if you're in an individual contributed role, it can be hard. But you can still make a difference in your team 
um, especially if you have direct management support. And even if you don't, you can make a difference to yourself, obviously, by learning new skills, but also to the people around you. And those do go out. I've seen that over and over again, that those ideas stick because they really work and they're, they're cool. You know, there's, there's some really cool stuff in these, in these agile engineering ideas that are just fun and exciting to, to play with. I'm curious, what, what's the thing that's kind of the, the easiest thing to remove some of these obstacles? Like what, are, are there things that you can just start doing that get you partway along the way? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, this was, it's funny because this was the conversation we had back in 2001 when people were first hearing about extreme programming uh-huh. and Agile. They're like, these are great ideas. I'm really excited. How can I do this as a grassroots movement? And uh, some of it, some things like test-driven development uh, you really want the support of your whole team to do that because otherwise you put the tests in and then they take them out again or, or they stop running them and they break and then you, you don't want to be responsible for maintaining them. So the best thing to do is to get together with the other people on your direct team that you know, affect the code you write and say, hey, let's try something. And I suggest like a three-month or a six-month trial period because a lot of these ideas take some time to really get good at. So if you can get the other members of your team to agree to a trial period, that's a great way of doing it. I have a book that's about 10 years old now called The Art of Agile Development, but it's mostly still current. And this book has really detailed guidance on what you can do in terms of a team and specific practices you can try. If you can't do that, if you can't get your team on board, there's still some things that you can do to make your life better as an individual developer. And one of those is, I think, build automation. Anything you can do to increase the feedback loop for your code, to make it easier and faster to see that what you're doing is working and that the changes you're making are successful increases quality of life. Uh, Amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I preach this a lot. And yeah, first, go ahead. It's, it's not, it, part of it's feedback and part of it's why the heck should you have to do that by hand? Yeah, it's such a pain, isn't it? And so, yeah, you know, the back to the idea of TDD and then having like continuous integration and things like that. Yeah, that's all feedback that is really important. And you can put linters in, you can do all these, these kinds of things that tell you what you're doing well and, you know, maybe where you need to improve. Um, there are also a whole bunch of like code statistics that you can grab. And again, it's feedback on your code. The other thing is, is, why should you be sitting around for two hours to pray that your latest deployment worked? Automate the thing, make it yeah. consistent. And the other thing is, is then you don't have to be the expert on it. You can have one or two people be the expert on that on your machine. And then it's just automatic. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the very first thing I do whenever I start a new project is, or whenever I start working with a company on their code base, first thing we do is we put in build automation. And my gold standard is I want to be able to press the button and get feedback about whether what I just did works Mm -hmm. good or bad in less than five seconds, less than 10 seconds max. Uh, So I actually don't put in a lot of the statistics that you're talking about, at least on the main loop, because I want it to be fast. And that's where having fast tests come in Mm -hmm. because tests again are a a feedback mechanism. among the other things that we talked about earlier. So if you have automation, it's probably still slow automation. So you can make it better by making it faster. Right. Uh, similarly, if you're doing continuous integration, you brought that up. Another thing you can do as an individual practitioner is increase, improve the feedback loop on your continuous integration. How long does it take to get feedback from that? 
What you want to be able to do is set up your continuous integration so that it's synchronous rather than asynchronous so that you can actually wait to see the result before you move on. Because if you do that and it goes wrong, you can fix it right away rather than having to switch off to a, you know, having switched off to another thing, get your brain back to where you are at. Um, it's all about decreasing that cycle time and keeping your brain on the, on the same topic so you can just keep on rolling and not lose your flow. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too. I mean, you mentioned that five to 10 second loop. Um, my friend David Brady, he, he has like minimum time to Twitter is what he calls it. <laughs> and so if, if the tests take longer than that, then he, he's totally distracted. And it's the same kind of thing, right? So if you keep that loop tight, and what that means is, um, and, and I kind of break this out for people, but yeah, you have like the, basically the smoke test. <laughs> is anything broken? And then, yeah, you have your continuous integration do the other thing. So it can do the linting and the checking and the, uh, the code statistics. And uh, um, people call it the happy path um, end-to-end test, but I hate that term. It's the money path end-to-end test. It's either how do we get paid or what are we getting paid for and that all that. But all that's slow. And I just want feedback. Did anything I do at first pass break anything? And Absolutely. It's easy because you get that feedback and then you just know. And then once you have that, especially if your team's on board with you, mm-hmm. then you can start making it better and, and bringing more of your work in and figuring out how to make your test faster and just slowly make it better. And man, there is so many quality of life gains possible from just these simple little things about increasing your feedback loops, um, getting those tests in there so that you change anything and you're, you're not worried about whether or not you have to break if you've broken something. You know, on a, on a sophisticated code base that's been built with these sorts of agile ideas from the beginning, I can go in and I can add a feature or rewrite something without having to search through code to see if I'm breaking anything. Mm-hmm. You know how you always get that thing where we, we want a new feature and so what we're going to do is we're going to search the whole code base to see, to very carefully spend, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, is it possible I'm breaking anything? in a code base that's been doing these agile ideas really well, you don't have to do that. You just make the change and then run the tests and find out if you've broken anything. And it goes from a 45 minute painful search to a two minute implementation, five second test run, I'm done. And that's, that's so much fun. It's so much fun to work in a code base like that. Well, I mean, sometimes we're talking about, oh, it's fun to work in a code base like that. And sometimes it's not fun to work in a code base that's not like that. And, you know, as much as I hate to be talking about pain avoidance, sometimes that's where we're at. It's, it's true. I, <laughs> I've gotten spoiled, you know, in the early days, when I first, when I first got involved with extreme programming, it was because uh, I was working with a company and they had a, a Greenfield project for me to help them with. And so I led a team re-implementing some software and we built it this way from the beginning. And that was in 1999, 2000. And the whole reason I became an agile software development writer and consultant and all the stuff I do now was because after that first job, I never wanted to work any other way again. But in 2000, nobody else was doing it. So my choice was to either go back to what I you know, now couldn't handle or teach people how to do it. But, and so I ended up doing the teaching. Awesome. It's kind of cool, pretty inspiring. Yeah, and I, I know that a big payoff for Joe is teaching as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm not exactly sure where to go from here. Is there anything else that we want to jump on? 
I think there's so much more we could talk about, but there we, definitely is. But yeah, your viewers probably don't want to listen for three more hours. Place to end. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is a pretty natural place to end. I would like to, uh, you know, invite you back. Maybe we'll have you on JavaScript Jabber or something, and we can uh, sort of refer to this conversation and then continue on some yeah. of the other ideas that are out there around agile development. But yeah, I don't hear many people talking about it anymore. And it's kind of sad because at least for me in some of the jobs that I worked, it made a major difference. So that's what I would like to see return. Uh, I would, I would definitely like to see, I don't care if we call it agile or not or extreme programming or whatever, but I really would like to see these innovative ideas that people are, are losing track of come back into the mainstream. Well, and I, I think, I think to that end, there are a lot of, how do I put it? So the speed of things, especially, you know, this is an Angular show. We're talking about JavaScript. I mean, it feels like things are moving faster and faster and faster and faster, right? We, we had um, framework after framework after framework after framework come out. And it seems like over the last year or so, we've kind of gotten a breather on that front because, well, we, we've got Angular and React and, you know, Vue's kind of been an up-and-comer. But nobody else is really, you know, pushing on that space. But now we're in the, the fight of our lives over what kind of state management we want. Uh, you know, and, and then we're going to be into, um, uh, I think some of the other ones were like build processes. We, you know, we went through some frantic action there and have mostly like the pack or one or two others. And, you know, things move so fast. And we see this in other areas too. I mean, the news cycle these days is in saying it feels like they've moved on to something new every two days and yeah you know so we we lose the ideas we lose the thread on these conversations very quickly and i think we need to come back in some ways to the ideas that are going to make a difference day in and day out and we've talked about some of them on here with agile development tdd and things like that um but but i don't know how we push those back to the forefront when it's kind of sexy to be out there working with the latest framework or build tool or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, I don't think these ideas are in conflict. I think you could work with the latest framework or build tool yeah. in this way. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't that be cool? If, I mean, part of the challenge of doing test-driven development, for example, is if you're working with a lot of frameworks or libraries that weren't built to support that way of working, they can be really hard to work with. Uh, so... It sure would be nice if, if there were more frameworks and libraries built around the idea that this is built to be tested. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. And Angular was built to be tested, which is another aside. But Anyway, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Joe, do you have some things you want to shout out about? You betcha. As always, I like to mention the Framework Summit. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. right. Next time you pick on me, I know where you're going to be in a few weeks. <laughs> yes, you do. I always like to pick the Framework Summit coming up here in about a month, three weeks after uh, release. So be sure and keep your eyes out for that. 
And finally, I want to pick Pluralsight. I was just up at the Pluralsight Live event, their big annual conference. They've been announcing you know, a few new things that they're bringing out. They've got this really cool skill IQ test where you can test how good you are at a specific topic like Angular or React or something like that. They just announced a big role IQ where you can kind of get your, give yourself sort of a marker for a score for how competent you might be at a specific role at a company right and i don't know the details of it yet i haven't like seen too much of it but i think it's a it's an interesting idea maybe perhaps a little bit one dimensional but still uh something useful so um those are my picks awesome i've got some things that i've been working on that i'm going to shout out about uh this episode will come out like i said next week um, I probably should find some way to buffer some ep- episodes. So maybe I'll jump in and, and do another solo episode or something. But So as this comes out, you just missed the pre-launch for the Get a Coder Job book and course, uh, but you can still get them. So uh, just go to getacoderjob.com or go to devchat.tv and check that out. One other thing that I'm going to shout out, I've just been working a ton on some of the stuff that people have been asking for. So one of the things that I've gotten a lot of requests for is how do I get a t-shirt? You know, they see me wearing a t-shirt on videos and stuff. If you go to swag.devchat.tv, you can get Adventures in Angular, Angular Rants, and my Angular Story swag. And I just set it up on TeePublic. It was really easy. But yeah, then you can get what you want. And uh, the other thing that I've been working on, and I just barely launched the Kickstarter for this, is codebadge.org. So if you go to codebadge.org, right now it's just a launch page. I need to get the link to the Kickstarter on there. And by the time this goes live, you can definitely get it. But the idea is is that uh, people keep asking me how to stay current. And I can give them sort of the way that I do it. So, you know, I, I go look at, you know, places on the internet where people have discussions and kind of figure out where things are headed. And sometimes I guess right, and sometimes I guess wrong. But then, you know, I, I have a process for learning some of these technologies. Well, when people want to learn these technologies, there's not always a great way to do that. And there's no way to keep track of what they've been learning. And so I thought it'd be fun to have like a badge where you could just go and kind of get the base level of something. So, you know, the Webpack badge, you know, you'd essentially go watch some videos and and then go play with a Webpack build in a GitHub repo and link to the repo and you get your badge. And then all the way up the chain, right? So if you if you contribute to a Webpack system of some kind, you know, maybe that's built into a CLI or something, you know, you can get the next level badge. And then if you contribute to the web, uh, Webpack project or the Babel project or something, right? Then, or if you contribute money to it or something, so you get that kind of a badge. And if you're on the core team of like a framework, you get a core team badge or something. So these are some of the ideas I have out there just to A, demonstrate your proficiency with something and B, also like for the base level badge, basically it's just going to have a list of resources in there and the expectation that you spend a few hours like watching conference talks or uh, workshop videos or plural site videos or something to get you up to speed on a particular topic. And so that way, you know, people can, you know, you can at least put that, you know, your badges on your website or whatever and show people, hey, look, I've at least, you know, spent a couple hours looking into this technology or I've, I've played with it or I use it at work or something like that and, and give people an idea at a glance of what you've done and give you an opportunity to link back to where you've actually done those things. So... Anyway, that's the idea. I, I definitely need to get the designer or three involved to get some badges made. But I thought it'd be an interesting way to, to get people to get involved in and kind of stay up to date on what they're working on. And I'd also love to put in something for like uh, agile development or like the agile fluency project looks like there are different stages you can go through. 
And so, you know, again, you could say, oh, well, we've gone through the first steps or we worked with a coach or something like that. And again, get some of those badges and things like that on something like that. Um, same thing with Framework Summit, right? You get a speaker badge or an attendee badge or something like that. Anyway, so th there are a lot of directions it could go, but it, it sounds like a fun way to kind of show, hey, this is what I'm working on. So um, I'm going to do that. One other thing I'm going to throw out there is that I'm probably going to start building it on my own pretty soon. And I'm going to be putting videos of building it on YouTube with all of my dumb mistakes left in. So anyway, talked a lot about a lot of stuff. Sorry about that. James, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got a, I got a bunch of picks actually that came to mind as we were talking. Uh, first thing I want to mention is if you're, if you're a coder and you're interested in the, the sort of this programming side of Agile and you, want to, and you have conference budget, uh, the Deliver Agile Conference is a great place to go to learn more about these ideas. That's Deliver colon Agile. Uh, I don't think they have the 2019 schedule up, but I went to the 2018 event and it was fantastic. I definitely recommend it. It happens, uh, I think, earlier in the year, March-ish. Uh, the second thing is if you're interested in sort of trying out the, some cutting edge ideas around doing the engineering side of Agile well, I do have a paper up on my site called Testing Without Mocks, A Pattern Language. It's not the most readable thing. So this is something for those of you who are feeling a little more advanced, but uh, I'll, I'll give you all the link and uh, you can check it out. Uh, this is a, a whole set of patterns on how to do test-driven development without using mocks or other test doubles uh, for those of you who know what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanna also want to call out uh, a build tool since this came up during while we were talking. Uh, my favorite build tool for JavaScript is called Jake. Nobody's ever heard of it but it is a fantastic, simple tool uh, inspired by Rake from the Ruby world and uh, definitely superior to anything else I've found. Although, because it doesn't have the ecosystem that the, other, that the other ones do, you do have to build more yourself. For those of you who are doing agile coaching, I don't know if, there's a, if that's a big part of the, the listeners for the show, but if you're doing uh, agile coaching, I have a free webinar coming out on September 12th. So hopefully this will, will come out in time for, uh, for people to sign up for that. It's called the High Performance Agile Coach. It's all about being an independent Agile coach or an in-house Agile coach and, and what it takes to be really successful at that. And then finally, my last pick, I have been recently starting to read the book series uh, for The Expanse, which I just want to, if you like science fiction, The Expanse TV show is, is absolutely fantastic. It's on, uh, I think it's on Amazon these days and originally was on the Sci-Fi channel. The books are also really good. So uh that's uh, that's my fun reading right now. And that's my picks. That's funny. I just barely got into the Expanse TV show. It's really good. I've been enjoying it. The first season's pretty good. I, I can account for that. And yeah, I have the the books in my wish list on Audible. So yeah, yeah. There was a moment. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to spoil anything. But there's a moment in the fourth episode where I went from, "Hey, this is a pretty good show," to, "This is awesome. I'm never watching anything else ever again." <laughs> I just loved it. Yeah, and I'm watching it on Amazon Prime. So if you have a Prime subscription, you can watch the videos for free. Yeah. I guess not technically for free, but as part of your subscription, you can watch them. Awesome. Well, James, one last question. If people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, the Agile Fluency Project can be found at agilefluency.org. And I've got some essays and so forth on my personal site, which is the ugliest website on the internet at uh, jameshore.com. Awesome. All right. Well... It's uh, definitely not going to win any design awards. I will confirm that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>
All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, James. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, we will be back next week. Peace out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.